Fishnets and Philosophy. This is your host, Mick Spell Morrigan, and once again, we're continuing the exploration into the question, Why Horror? Where each week, myself and a different guest try and unpack this fun question. So this week, I am joined by the fantastic Brad Hansen, who a lot of people would know as being familiar with the evolution of horror world. So if you could just uh, introduce yourself, Brad, your kind of general connection to horror. Yeah, hello. I'm Brad. Um, you will mostly know me from the evolution of horror. Mike's been very fortunate to have showcased me on the podcast since it's very genus. I think I was the second ever episode he ever recorded, which was uh, an esteemed pleasure. But you've also maybe heard me on Stevie's Brain Rot. I now do a regular series with him and Alex Aylin called The Mates of Hell. I've been on Zobo of a Shotguns podcast and other, you know, Strong Language of Violent Scenes and a few other bits and pieces. But predominantly, just what you re- should really know me for is my incredibly bad takes on Letterboxd. I would say that's where you'll mostly find me causing havoc about horror on the internet. Incredibly bad takes? Whatever do you mean? They're the most entertaining <laughs> things ever. <laughs> One no. man's trash is another man's treasure. <laughs> <laughs> exactly and sure that's what we horror fans are we will we'll find joy in everything <laughs> even if that's tearing apart something we love it but no thank you so much for coming on and as my listeners would know by now with this series i kick off each conversation with this first question because it's a good one to ask and i like hearing everyone's different answers so for yourself um what was the first horror film that you remember watching and then a kind of like addendum to that because sometimes these answers are different what was a horror film that made you a fan of horror yeah i mean it's it's, it's such an interesting question to ask people this um, to see where the genus comes from in that regard the film that i remember there, there are three instances um the first horror film i would loose horror film i can remember watching was jaws um which mm-hmm. me with a profound phobia of sharks that i still carry to this day so as you can imagine i'm absolutely thrilled that the meg 2 is out this <laughs> way, uh at time of recording um so um that film left an indelible mark on me because it was that giddy feeling of being scared but entertained at the same time and chasing that the next thing would be uh, specifically Nightmare on Elm Street Part 5, The Dream Child, um, which was being advertised on a bus hoarding on the way to my primary school. And I used to cower behind my dad because I was petrified of the man on the poster, which obviously was Freddy Krueger. And then the film that I think actually sparked my love of horror or my love of being scared or my love of engaging with, with horrific content would be the uh, Evil Dead 2. Mm. I had a house party around a friend, uh, not a house party, a sleepover, and my friend stayed over and we watched um, Evil Dead 2, and it, co- it it was so unrelenting that we had to pause it and stop it for a bit because we needed to catch our breaths because we were being hit with so much, like a wave after wave mm-hmm. of, of, at the time, terror, uh, obviously retrospectively, not that scary a film, but mm-hmm. little, little teen me 
was <laughs> could knack it. Didn't like it up him at that point. So I would say those are the three. Amazing. What a good, strong list of... And yeah, it's one of my favorite questions of the game is just seeing how everyone's like... As you said, horror genus started, like what kicked them on this path. It's always so entertaining. But actually, spinning off into this um, second question, because uh, you kind of said it there by describing Jaws as loose horror for yourself. When it comes to horror, do you have like personal criteria as to like what you'd consider this is horror, this isn't, or is it more kind of gray, kind of everything kind of fluctuates in between? I think if you were asking this question to Mike Munzer, he would tell you that literally everything <laughs> is horror, um, which I don't necessarily agree with. I think there are things that are definitely out, definitely not horror. Mm-hmm. Um, Wreck-It Ralph, not really a horror. I can't find an argument that would say that that is a horror. Mm-hmm. So uh, for me, there are some really interesting films that have been created that are not staunchly known as horrors even contemporarily like with something like Oppenheimer mm-hmm. that's very re- like very current very in the conversation right now has definitely got horrific tones to it so even in its execution its score in its presentation of you know the the, the trinity test there are certain horror elements in that so what is horror it can be broken down into two sort of separate sections right it can just be things that are straight up going to be horror mm-hmm. and there are also films that tackle horrific subjects horrific taboos horrific pe- people being horrific that could be travesties like war genocide i would call those films horror films as well because they're dealing with the darker side of humanity amazing answer i'm just loving that and it's like sending my brain in so many different tangents um but i definitely think uh at the crux of that, and this is a quote I've like kind of used so many times on this series because it's just so relevant, but it's um, you know, the quote from Joe Hill, Stephen King's son, where he says, you know, horror isn't about um creating fear, it's about creating empathy. As in like you need to kind of care what about the people and what they're going through, and that's what makes it scary because you 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 care about those people. You worry, yeah. Exactly, you worry about them. And that's why I think even like I said, bringing in Oppenheimer as you said or even more current films as well it's less about something that's particularly happening on screen and more the emotions the film is making you feel and that's why it's kind of a genre that is very multifaceted so I guess stemming from that then for yourself would there be particular kind of like favorite subgenres that you would turn to like more than others when it comes to engaging with horror yeah, there is, I certainly have um, genres that work for me a lot more. In terms of if you want to scare me, supernatural ghost stuff is the mm-hmm. stuff that that still puts the willies up me. Now, I've been renowned as a man that's very difficult to be scared. Um, I wear that as a somewhat scarlet letter, but also <laughs> pride with, <laughs> with, with, with semblance of pride permeating through that i was on a a a tv show on bbc3 back in 2015 called the fear Mm. um and the producers were fucked off with me because i was they they couldn't get a scare reaction out of me for any any film and i was like show me some scary stuff and then we'll have a conversation about me jumping shall we um but in terms of the comfort so so for if i want to scare myself supernatural ghosty type stuff Mm -hmm. for pure comfort it's got to be sort of 
exploitative, slashy, gory trash from the 70s and 80s. Predominantly produced in Italy, normally, Mm -hmm. would be my sort of comfort watch, the films that I enjoy engaging with the most. Amazing. And actually, um, that is another great lead into one of the other questions I have, because as you said, you tend to gravitate towards the more kind of as exploitative genre of horror and stuff like that. And I guess kind of stemming from that, um, like this is, I think, a topic question that every horror fan kind of has to kind of grapple with themselves on their horror journey. But like for yourself, like um, how do you feel about like censorship? Like, do you think that there's a line on what is acceptable in cinema forward slash film and horror? Or is it kind of, there shouldn't be a line and where everything is permissible. Uh, I'm definitely in the former camp. I don't agree with censorship in, in that regard. I find it a fascinating concept. I look at the eighties video nasties panic spearheaded by Mary Whitehouse. And I look at that situation where there was literally a moral bastion saying that, although I've never engaged with any of this content, I deem it inappropriate for anyone of any age to view in this country. And although that seems such a like a fantastical thing to think about, you know, being instilled in today's modern culture because Mm. of the advent of the Internet and things that make things a lot easier for you to source, um, it it, it is to to me a degree of fascism and a degree of. control Mm -hmm. and there are arguments to be said that do you need to watch the uncut version of cannibal holocaust to get an idea of what the uh, yeah sense of what the film is trying to say similarly with a serbian film those five minutes that are removed from the 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 english uh version of the film um as opposed to the uncut version are they vital do they are they required it's Mm. that's what each person's individual assessment however I always believe in seeing a film as the filmmaker intended it, even if they've since, in Diodato's case, or Cannibal Holocaust, walked back and said, I wish I hadn't done Mm. what I did with Cannibal Holocaust. I want to see the film in its purest form, not in its sanitised or censored way. Amazing. And yeah, it is such a nuanced topic. And I think it does come down to individual preference, like what a person's, like, individual choices are as to what they want to engage with like I think for me when it comes to like censorship like I'm definitely in favor of like say developing like rating systems and saying we kind of think that people below this age probably can't engage with this content just yet but we're still going to allow the content to exist versus this should not be seen by anyone anywhere like I do think there's like a difference between that and it's removing the morals and just kind of having an objective viewpoint on it because there are some things that you know you probably shouldn't see at certain ages but then that's why we're horror fans because we saw all these things probably before we should have so it's a weird thing that we do have to grapple with um but actually i really like how you mentioned um sanitization and how you're kind of like against that in it's you know in the purest form of it so stemming from that this is a topic that i've been asking a lot on this series and it's kind of something that's just been plaguing my mind but I kind of think in general with a lot of like our mainstream media that we've been getting over the last like I don't know 10 years longer everything seems to be have become more sanitized and also very desexualized 
And horror seems to be the only genre that's kind of not falling victim to that. And I want to know, do you think this is just coincidental or is it deliberate that horror is kind of as a genre going, no, we're refusing to kind of bow down? Like, I want to know what you think about that. I think horror as a framework if you're looking at how you structure a narrative and the things that you deal with in that narrative allow for sexualization to be explored in greater depth in mm-hmm. terms of its representation on screen. Um, but also, if you look at horror, horror's always been, from the beginning of time, a, a deeply sexual genre of filmmaking. You look at films... The, the kind of sexualization of films from the 1940s that Jack mm. Tornier was making, like Cat People, inherently very coded in sexuality. And that's been something that throughout the the decades, horror and sex have, have wrestled with each other. Sometimes horror rejects sex and uses it as a mm. a, a, a punishment, a, a moral bastion in the, in the slasher genre. and But also at the same time in the 80s, David Cronenberg's exploring body horror and sexuality uh, and still continues to do so contemporarily with films like Crimes of, uh, of the Future. And, you know, his son obviously is doing a lot to, to you know, bring cum shots back to the main screen, which, you know, more cum shots in, in all cinema. The problem is with contemporary cinema outside of the horror genre is it was never mm-hmm. particularly overtly sexy. We had the 90s erotic thrillers. Um, and, you know, they would put sex scenes in action films. I remember one very distinctly in The Specialist with Sylvester Stallone and Sharon Stone. They have a shower together. <laughs> and at the time, young burgeoning me, 10 years old, was like, this is the best thing since sliced bread. But similarly to the sex scene in hmm. in Showgirls, where as a 12, 13-year-old, I was like, this is the sexiest thing I've ever seen. And now I'm watching it as a jaded 30-year-old plus year old man and i'm like this is camp as fuck like how did i ever think this was anything but ridiculous and stupid and i miss i miss the sexiness that that cinema could bring and it's certainly in contemporary cinema even something like oppenheimer again tries to have a sex scene and it's like painfully cringe uh, and you know it's it's not a representation of of I don't know, but maybe as a society, it's a, it's a, sex right now in society mm. is such a weird thing. Like, because there, it's almost like there's two sides of this coin. In in one side, everyone is, there's, there are lots of people embracing their sexuality and embracing their kinks and the things that they like. But at the same time, there is this kind of moral majority, majority yeah. right that are like, no! And they've always been there. They've always been there, but there seems to be this real dichotomy between the two right now. And I think horror allows us to look at those two aspects Mm -hmm. because often left-wing and right-wing views coexist in a horror film because they have to 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 cause the conflict. Uh, And it gives people the opportunity to explore them in interesting ways. Yeah, it is. Again, it's like a massively big topic that you could spend an entire podcast series just on that one topic. Um, Exactly. Yeah, just about yeah. <laughs> But no, I like <laughs> myself, I definitely think um, a big part of this whole, like, kind of everything that's kind of influencing the media, and then we get influenced by the media in this weird, vicious cycle is like 
you know, the advent of social media and in particular that so much of our big social media platforms are controlled by these massive American corporations that have very strict kind of moralistic views that are kind of steeped in Puritanism over what is and isn't acceptable. And I kind of think that influences people as to what they deem we can view on screen as what's permissible and it's like this weird thing that's feeding each other but yes i definitely think horror is the genre that's always had its its own kind of tackling of sex and sexuality but like i think like and i want to know if you've picked up on it and i think you have even when you said that you missed the sexiness of cinema in that like you know i used to remember you could watch like films from like you know the 70s and the 80s maybe even earlier and like there isn't any sex on screen, but there's this sexual tension between the characters. And you can almost imagine that once the camera pans away, those characters are going to rip their clothes off and go at it. Whereas now in so much of our modern cinema, mm. both a lot of horror and like just contemporary um, cinema, you have all these incredibly beautiful people without any sexual tension. And I'm just like, I don't know if this is just like something I'm noticing because like I work in sex work and stuff like that and I'm picking up on these things more or if it is a genuine thing that's changed with the media that we're engaging with. Well, you, you said about sort of the social media sort of heads kind of, you know, um, controlling the narrative or the way that we, we mm-hmm. engage with those sort of things. You're looking at people like Musk and uh, Zuckerberg, two guys that have never <laughs> fucked properly in their lives, I would be surprised. Um, if I asked either of them where the clitoris is, they'd assume that was some kind of code uh, in their stupid little websites. Um, so, yes, it's uh, 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 you look at the chemistry between characters these days, even if you're looking at Marvel films, are like obviously the perfect poster child for a completely sort of um sterilized sexless existence didn't they recently put something in one of them where they two people finally like fucked and everyone was like this is groundbreaking it's like bro (laughs) it's not it's not that hard um but you see it kind of permeate through most media there is a kind of sexlessness because i think people are so afraid of taking a filmmakers and, and and content creators are so scared mm. about taking a stance a simple stance as saying for some example gay gay relationships are fine and then having the media blowback mm-hmm. of andrew tate and such the like telling them it's haram and it's against the law and you shouldn't be doing that and you're looking at you know drag queens in telling uh, stories to children and the, the big furore through that. As I say, this big kind of puritanical right-wing um, organization, we'll call it, is people, I think people are so upset or so worried mm-hmm. that they don't want to upset that apple cart and get branded with that kind of, you know, like, because it's, it's a short and very quick slippery slope between making a film that has a stance that maybe they don't agree with to them then yeah. witch hunting that filmmaker as a pedophile and a pizzagate adrenochrome drinking psychopath. So I see why people are scared or filmmakers are reluctant or, re- or reticent to lay their cards mm-hmm. on the table in terms of what their identity is with their opinions are on sex and sexuality. 
but it seems yeah. like horror gets away with it more which is great because we're getting to see more queer stories being told more stories from perspectives that i've never had an opportunity to engage with i find that uh, a, you know a, a fascinating a rich enriching opportunity uh but most people you know if you are certain people they would say oh, i was abhorrent and what they're doing is wrong it's just fortunately horror is still so underground and mainstream mm-hmm. it, it kind of slips through their catchment net and they can't they don't get the eyes yeah, on it no, to be 100%. offended by i think it, like, um like i'm always a firm believer of saying like horror as a genre is most of the time inherently queer like it's something that i've just always felt and i kind of feel that it's a beautiful thing because a lot it's like the messaging is there for the people who know to look for it and you know it's something that as you said can just go over the heads of people who don't know what to pick up on it but kind of jumping off something that you were um like kind of saying there about how like you love that horror is the one type of genre where you're getting to see different perspectives that you might not necessarily have experienced like you know more so than any other type of genre of film and <laughs> stemming from that uh i <laughs> this is something that i've kind of like you know picked up and i want to know what you kind of think but there is i've noticed that there does seem to be this certain kind of subset of horror fan that bemoans the state of modern horror like they kind of they completely say that you know there is no good horror anymore and i want to know like where do you think that like type of attitude comes from <laughs> uh, misogyny <laughs> <laughs> when I saw that question written down, I was like, "But it's easy. It's not, that's that's an easy one to answer. It's patriarchal oppression, isn't it?" Um, there are a lot of bros. There are a lot of dude bros that uh, want a big muscular masked man to chop up women because they daren't open their legs. Don't even get mm-hmm. me. Don't get them started. Or if there's a gay person in there, they will they will shit their pants. They don't like it. They've, you know, it's a it's a form of gatekeeping, right? They believe, like metal music and everything else that has a kind of niche or, or, or smaller or clandestine following, people want to protect it and keep it the way that they like it. You know, I had bands, for example, that changed their sounds completely. And I'm like, you've ruined it. They haven't ruined it. They've just evolved. And it's a, you've got, I think a lot of people um, have mm. too much of themselves invested in horror. I think they offer they 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 make it their identity like i'm a horror guy you know everyone is a, yeah. a horror person to a to a degree but that can't be the only thing that you are and i think a lot of these like dude bro horror fans that are like oh it's crap now because we're seeing fucking trans stories and we're hearing this and we're hearing that it's it's reductive bullshit and if they took the time to sit down with this media and engage with it they'd see that the story's mm-hmm. the same it's just a different voice telling it it's and but there's not a lot of there there is unfortunately not a lot of tolerance in sort of mainstream horror bro fandom but fortunately from my perspective i've managed to find myself in a cluster of of like-minded horror fans that celebrate all kinds of diversity within horror and I can't 100%. see that. As a and yeah, no, you were very much right. It was very an easy question that it's like, this is just going to be a fun question that we can have this rant about a certain subset. <laughs> um, yeah. No, because I do think it is something that should be addressed in general. Because like, I think like particularly again, like I said, with the horror bros and the dude bro type attitude, it's something that like, these are the people that are kind of like, the loudest on social media about all these type of things. It's easy to think that, 
they're the only people that are engaging with her, you know, because they're the loudest. And it's like, no, no, there's actually a lot more, <laughs> you know, level-minded, open-minded people who like want her to continue changing and innovating and becoming more and more progressive because it just makes for more interesting stories and yeah as you said it's the same story just a different voice and I think some people just don't like that that voice has a voice right now um but stemming from that similar like kind of overlapping topic but I want to know what you think about this one um but like myself I've definitely seen a lot of this, like, you know, with people online kind of saying like these type of comments after certain films come out, particularly kind of mainstream horror. But there is this type of attitude I've seen where someone will say, you know, X film wasn't good because I wasn't scared. And I want to know for yourself, like, do you think horror needs to be scary to be considered good? No. It's it's the short answer. I I, I shall elaborate. So henceforth, Um, I think, I think, as you harks back to the sort of the first comment that you made at the beginning of of, of recording, where you said about empathy, the the quote from Joe Hill, and I think Mm -hmm. that as long as you feel something, and you know you connect with the narrative in a way that you feel like you've 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 experienced the narrative in the way that the filmmaker intends, or certainly your interpretation of the way the filmmaker intends. I think that's all you can ask for because I've seen plenty of great horror films that didn't make me jump once. I mean, I'm the best person to ask because nothing makes me jump. Something like talk Mm -hmm. to me, which has just come out. You talk about characters that you're actually invested in. That film does a great job of making you know about who everyone is within the first 20 minutes, but also care about who they are. And then they go through it. Now that film makes a lot of people jump. It didn't make me jump. But it makes other people jump, and that's fine. But there are loads of there there are loads of horror films that aren't inherently like blood curdingly terrifying, but mm-hmm. deal with multifaceted areas of life from grief, trauma, exploitation, and looking at all these difficult subject matters and tackling them in a way that's both engaging and sparking conversation because i think that's the best thing that you can do from any film let alone a horror Mm -hmm. film is to come away from a film with questions or ideas or concepts or statements that you feel that you want to share with people online unless they're negative then maybe keep them to yourself i don't know i mean (laughs) i don't know why i'm trying to i'm like one of the most (laughs) negative people in the world (laughs) but it's fine when i do it but when that everyone else shut up don't be horrible because when I do it, it's funny. Like... <laughs> yeah, but no, but no, that's a really good point. Uh, but I do think that there is like a subtle difference between, as I said, I guess negative criticism of a film and shitting on people's joy of a film. And I do think there's a subtle difference. Definitely over the last like kind of few years, we've seen like, you know, the hashtag let people enjoy things crop up every now and then. And it's one of the things initially at the start, it has a lot of like, you can understand where they're coming from that, you know, the second someone says, oh, I really enjoyed, like, say, for example, talk to me, I really enjoyed talk to me, someone will straight up and go, oh, well, here's why the film is shit. And it's like, that's just being a dick. But actually expressing why a film didn't work for you that should be encouraged. Like, you know, that open dialogue of people kind of trying to find the middle ground of like, you know, I could, there's so many films that I absolutely didn't work for me, but I love that people enjoy it. 
like for example for one of the ones that <laughs> i has never worked for me but i know and appreciate its place in horror history but kubrick's the shining like <laughs> never worked for me but i understand its importance and i love that people rave about it but it just didn't work for me i have a question for you mm-hmm. is there a horror film that you would if someone said oh i really like this film you you yourself would be like walking red flag <laughs> uh well, so it doesn't have to be a horror yeah, film no. there's a it's like, <laughs> well e- either either um oh there's there's probably like <laughs> well actually the first one that popped into my head even though like i wouldn't even like class it as an actual film more just a collection of awfulness but um glenn danzig's verotica <laughs> if someone told me that oh they enjoyed that god. i'd be like <laughs> oh my god <laughs> What a piece of shit. Yeah, if someone genuinely came to me and said, oh, I loved that, I'd be like, I, I can't be in the same room as you. <laughs> yeah, I can't tell any, any subsequent opinions you have, however however right they may be, unfortunately, you've undermined them entirely. Um, yeah, that, that's, that's, the, that's the more jokey answer. There's probably, if I actually thought about it, there's probably like, quote-unquote good horror films that have like i guess problematic undertones that would make me a bit hesitant if someone said that they're a fan of it but that's more just because i'm a big queer so like you know there are certain films that are very anti-queer that if someone said oh i love that film i'd be like ah you can you can like the film but i'm gonna steer queer (laughs) yeah get you yeah no but no 100 um but yeah i really like what you're saying out there as well as about as you said if the film makes you feel something it works that's at the end of the day but i think with them like horror fans and it's actually linking back to what you said earlier as well about how i think too many horror fans are like they have too much of themselves invested in loving horror and they're as you said they've made it an identity i think in a similar vein so many horror fans like as you can probably relate you know so much of it is like you're seeking that experience of the first time you ever saw a horror film you know that like you're trying to replicate that when you engage with every new horror and you're never going to get that first experience because you can't replicate that and I think if people were more I guess aware of themselves going into films it might color how they experience it in the same vein that you know I'd never say everyone should watch a film twice like because that making a rule like that is stupid but yeah who has the time exactly also who has the time but um i do think sometimes giving films a second chance is beneficial in that like if someone goes the first time they go to watch a movie that day they had a really shit day at work or something like that that's going to color how they experience the film. So if more people were aware of the fact that, oh, I just didn't really enjoy that film, but I've had a shit day, that could be why. And giving it a second chance. like, And I want to know, like, do you think that horror fans as a whole, like, and obviously we can't really generalize, but do you think that we kind of don't do that enough, that we don't kind of pause with ourselves before jumping into a film? I think I think you cannot, as a as anyone that engages with any form of media, overlook the fact that you are bringing your entire self into a film. And if a film doesn't work for you, that's as much a you problem mm-hmm. as it is the film's problem. Because 
I bring with me with every film I watch, every other film I've ever watched, and all of my ideas, my my thoughts, my feelings on every multifacet of a subject matter to each individual film that I watch. The next film I watch will be inferred by the ne- the last film mm-hmm. I watch, which happened to be Congo from 1995, uh, which also holds an incredibly special and dear place in my heart because I was 10 years old. Mm-hmm. It was a 12-rated film, and I managed to get into the cinema and see it. So that, for example, is not a good film, but it means the world <laughs> to me because of what I've experienced with yeah. it. Now, that film would maybe take on a completely different idea if i went to try and get into it and i didn't Mm -hmm. and then i suddenly fucking hate that film because that film like daylight for example sylvester stallone's daylight i was supposed to go on a date to see that film and she stood me up so now fuck daylight (laughs) hate it don't like it right so this is they're two prime (laughs) examples of my formative years where a film my relationship with a film has been adversely affected Mm -hmm. by the way that i've engaged with it there are certain films for a perfect example is possession from 1981 it is my breakup film mm. it is the film that i think perfectly encapsulates watching someone you love twist and contort into something unrecognizable until the love that you have between each other is dead mm-hmm. and it's like my breakup jam and i'll always associate that film with it being like a breakup film which i mean it kind of is but to so many other people it's so much more yeah. from a, from a feminine standpoint that is a, a liberating film of a woman breaking free of the shackles of a, a relationship and finding love and self-acceptance in a lovecraftian fuck monster <laughs> and that's that's great that's their yeah. inter- and I, I that's what i love about interpretations and i love hearing other people's takes some of them suck mm-hmm. and i'm like bad take <laughs> Don't get it, but for everyone's reading of a film is so different. Up, you know, yours and mine will be completely different, mm-hmm. and I find it fascinating just hearing other people's um, take, like views on films and how they saw it, and especially when they're so wildly different. I find that such a fascinating conversation to have, even if I don't agree with you, because I just think it's such. It's great to see two the same story being viewed in two completely separate ways, and. I think more people should think about that. Oh, 100%. Yes. And like, as I said, it is a beautiful thing. And that's like, you know, part of the the best thing about, you know, having those, as you said earlier, the conversations after watching a film, like, you know, get like seeing your each person's different perspective. And yeah, because at the end of the day, we all have our own uniquely colored experiences of the world. So every perspective experience of a film will be, as you said, colored by your own individual experiences and also that's just a great beautiful thing like imagine how fucking boring and bland everything would be if everyone had the exact same reaction to every film we could be a world of people who loved glenn danzig's veronica i don't want to be in that world i, I don't want to live in this world <laughs> it would be it's it's like a equilibrium isn't it where we're feeling an emotion's been taken out of uh out of society and suddenly you're just in get like you're just watching Strictly Come Dancing, <laughs> yeah, and, and, and putting on Verotica, yeah, eating a Finder's crispy pancake. Yeah. Sounds like the worst day of my life. Yeah, that's. Uh, I I have Egrain Hackacantabrana to thank for burning that film into my brain. Um, it will never leave, unfortunately. But yeah. um, coming back to something that you said earlier, which you've actually kind of mentioned this phrase a few times, and it leads into this um, really kind of in 
good topic that I like discussing on this series. But you mentioned, mm. you know, the filmmaker's intention or how the filmmaker intended a film to work to be when it was put out into the world. And I want to know, like, do you think that, say, the concept of the death of the author can apply to horror films in the sense that the filmmaker makes a film, they, as you said, have their full intentions of how they intend the film to work, but once it's out in the world, they have no control of it, their intention doesn't really matter? Or do you think that a filmmaker's intention is always there and people's perspectives and viewpoints you know they have them but they might not necessarily be correct like what do you think on that well i think i think the 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 primo example of that is a film unfortunately not horror related but it's uh tommy wiseau's the room mm. uh that is a film where a filmmaker set out with the best intentions to make a tennessee williams style drama um and it was not <laughs> garnered in that way and it's now become obviously the cult classic that it is. And he has since reframed his narrative to say that, oh, it's all I've always wanted to make this absurdist black comedy. You fucking you didn't. <laughs> you didn't. Um I think an author's you know, a, a, a director's intention is is always prevalent within a film. Mm-hmm. But everyone's interpretation of the film, you know, there is a film, for example, Troll Two. Mm-hmm. You ever seen Troll Two? It's on my list, but I've been told by so many people that it's one of the so bad it's good films. Yeah, <laughs> you want to talk about Death of the Author? That was a film where they tried really hard. They really did. The entire film is in for- like that is written um, because this woman who was involved with the filmmaking got really annoyed that all her friends became vegetarian. So that is basically the crux of what the film is, and as such. The film has now taken on, obviously, this larger-than-life persona, and it's now this kind of, you know, as you say, so bad it's good. Um, comedy <laughs> now, more so than a horror. Um, so these things happen all the time. Even with mainstream, big-budget films, mm-hmm. they have the best intentions. Uh, do you remember Passengers with Chris Pratt and Jennifer Lawrence? Oh, yeah. That... Ah. <laughs> like they, had every, they had every idea that that was going to be kind of like this like romantic, but sort of... And then it just turns into like male entitlement, the movie. Like, <laughs> I, woke you, I woke you up because I was bored. <laughs> it's, like, it's like the whole narrative yeah. of the film. And I'm like, <laughs> when was it? And then like, oh, and like, we as an audience are told we're supposed to want them to get back together yeah. and like, reconcile. And I'm like, broski, no. <laughs> no, he's fucked yeah. it. Like they had the potential to make it like a proper like psychological horror once that you know you get that twist, but nope, they were like trying to cram it into being like you know yeah you want them together. It's just like we can overcome this. Don't worry about it. It's no big deal that I've literally killed you with my own boredom. Um, So I you know it's something that pivots and films themselves take on a a different meaning. You Mm -hmm. look at something like I Spit on Your Grave, which. I don't believe for a second that Miyazaki decided that he was going to make a film that was sensitive to the idea of rape revenge. Mm. I don't Mm. think he was that particularly interested in exploring um, women's suffrage when it comes to that kind of violence Mm -hmm. and the assault, you know, the, 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 the revenge that then comes with it, the kind of catharsis behind it. However, that narrative has now been kind of, almost repurposed and kind of reclaimed by all walks of people, yeah. not necessarily just feminine, but all walks of people as a kind of, you know, Phoenix from the ashes mm-hmm. call to arms of, of, of taking back control and taking revenge on those that have wronged us. 
do I think the film is that or do I not? I'm somewhere in the middle. I think it's both exploitative and it can be read that way as well. Mm-hmm. And I think both sides are right. But Miyazaki's intention was probably these films are doing well right now. Look how well Last House mm-hmm. London Left did. Let's make another one of them. Bit of boob, bit of cock trauma, and we're out. Yeah. So, like, what his what were his intentions? You can ask him, but directors lie all the time. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's that's going to be the tagline for this episode. <laughs> directors lie all of the time. <laughs> I'll add that to my merch. <laughs> but no, but no, that's um, it's so true. Like, I think it's. You know, it's one of those things, and like, you know, they even say like so much just about history in general. There's always two sides, and then the truth is probably somewhere in the middle for so many experiences of the world. And I think it's the same for films in the sense that there's a filmmaker's intention, how much their intention was what they say it is, and people's readings and perspectives of the film. Somewhere in between is probably some actual objective truth of what the film is, but ultimately it's the discussions around it that are the fun part. If we, you know, again, if we weren't having these fun discussions, dissecting these films, like it's why would we make art in general, you know, but stemming from that, another big thing that I think a lot of horror fans in particular do have to reconcile with as we engage with media. Do you think that we can, to a point, separate art from artists when we're engaging with films? What would your stance on that be? We've had to wrestle with it. You know, I've had episodes where I've had to wrestle with this this conversation because you look at something made by a monster like Jeepers Creepers, mm, yeah. um, which I was talking about with someone recently. Okay, it was a quiz question and we got it wrong. And I was like, I'm glad I got that wrong. <laughs> I'd have rather not known. Um, but did I love that film when it first came out? Yeah. Did I know about the allegations when I first saw it? No. Have I watched it since I learned about the allegations? Also, no. So I've informed my own opinion in that sense. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that I don't respect the film or have fond memories of that film. But like, for example, there was a new one, weren't there? Uh, Jeepers Creepers Reborn. Yeah. Which has got nothing nothing to do with him. Yeah. It's someone, I think it's Tommy Wakola, I think, or some, someone, someone did it. Yeah. Um, and I haven't engaged with that either. Now, I've made that conscious decision. I could watch it at any time that I want. I'm free to do so. From a moral standpoint, I certainly am as well, because he is he's not involved in this film at all. However, I've chosen not to, and I am the guy that sees everything, <laughs> for a reason, right? Yeah. There's a reason why that doesn't sit well with me. Flip side of that, if you said to me, do you want to watch Rosemary's Baby tonight? I'd probably say, yeah, because that film is really, really good, yeah. but made by another... <laughs> another problematic mon- human. Yeah, another problematic like. <laughs> monster, yeah. And you look at the films of Kevin Spacey, you know. Yeah. And now where we are with the, the recent court situation and all that sort of thing, where he's someone that's been completely ruined because of all the allegations and all the facts and all the, you know, the things that have come out about him and his conduct and his behavior. But he was in some brilliant films. Yeah. But like I had to rewatch Seven recently, and he is, although albeit brief, he is a part of that, a, a central part of that. Does that mean I shouldn't watch Seven anymore because he's in it? That's there's so many other people's work yeah. involved. Yeah. So I guess I guess the thing is because then you're then the question you're asking yourself, right, from a philosophical yeah. standpoint, is 
how much is too much? Mm-hmm. Like, what what can I forgive? Can I forgive you having sex with an underage girl? But do I draw the line? Uh, rape or like where yeah. what what what's my line where's my moral compass it and my moral compass and your moral compass are two different things and then our moral compass and rishi sunak's moral compass <laughs> two very different things. <laughs> are, are a, po- a, a polar di- di- <laughs> at diametric yeah. uh, ends of the spectrum so it's it's an incredibly difficult one so then it, I, I guess the question that the answer really is do you still enjoy the content yeah, exactly. It's it's it is such a nuanced topic and I think like it's something that I'm always like flip-flopping on and like I've had this you know question this entire series I'm almost like up to like episode you know talked to almost like 26 people now with the same question and I'm still nowhere near having a definitive answer because I don't think you can because it's different for every as you said it depends on what the person involved with what their allegations are there are so many different things like where do you as you said where do you draw the line i think ultimately for me my kind of what i end up always landing on is that there's a difference between acknowledging Roman Polanski is a bit of a problematic shitbag for everything he did but rosemary's baby is an amazing film and engaging with the film as a piece of film and but still acknowledging what Polanski did versus I'm going to continue monetarily supporting a problematic person you know so like for myself like like one of the kind of I guess examples that I always land on is not to do with horror but because I'm a queer forward slash trans person it's kind of relevant but you know I'm not going to care if someone continues to read the Harry Potter books or watch the Harry Potter films, you know, because like they exist already. I don't really, you know, I can understand if they gave you joy and they still do. That's fine. If you continue to like, if you buy the new Harry Potter game or if you like put money in Rowling's pocket, knowing how problematic she is, then I might kind of, you know, be going, I don't know about that. But I think there's a difference between just engaging with something that already exists versus continuing to financially support a problematic person. But at the end of the day, we all make those decisions ourselves. It comes back to censorship. We can't tell people what they can and can't do. We can just make that decision for ourselves, but I'll probably steer clear of someone you know, who's engaging with someone that I find problematic. Yeah, I suppose... So, for example, I was the world's greatest trans ally until about a year ago um, because I'd never seen any Harry Potter films. (laughs) But they, uh, my girlfriend, Lily, as some people will know who she Mm -hmm. is because she's my long suffering. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, um, she also made me suffer uh, because she's a big fan of the Harry Potter films. Mm -hmm. They're part of her staple childhood, you know. Um, And I was forced, forced, (laughs) like, I'm talking like, for like Alex from. Footwork orange <laughs> pinned down and, and forced to watch all of them um so you know but then i think you 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 have hit the nail on the head though about continual support yeah. or financial gain even someone like uh james charles who's had a litany of allegations mm-hmm. if you continue to subscribe and to 
engage with their content and and everything that goes along with that then i think there's something questionable within that yeah however but then i mean it's a moot point because i'm not going to be engaging with much james charles content uh, have you seen these brows um <laughs> there's no um all hope is lost in that regard but yeah i think i think jk is a, a a good example as well because if she was to release a new Harry Potter book because I'm sure, surely the money's going to dry up soon with all this, you know, mm. uh, you know, everything going on. If she, if she went back to the well, I think it's at that point you've got to be like you can't you can't buy that book, you can't engage with that content. But those up those old films when Radcliffe was a cute little kid, you, you can't stop them. They're there <laughs> yeah. and they're part of the they're part of the cultural zeitgeist to like the nth degree. Where I was so happy not knowing what a sorting hat was, I was so happy, and now I know, and I'd rather not know what a wampin willow is. I don't want to know what a wampin willow is. I love that. I'm doing so well, but yes, I I think ultimately that's like you know what it is, or even like you know there will be like a news headline that says Woody Allen is making a new film. <laughs> I'm just kind of like, ah. Oh. He still exists? Oh, yeah. And then also, oh, who's going to be working with him? Because now I'm just like, the people who work with him and like speak up for, and like, this is just one example, but you could pick any of the people who've had something said about them. But it's just like, the people who vouch for them in public when what's happened is like known public record thing and not just like a allegation thing, but it's a known yes, I, thing. Yeah. If you continue to speak up for them and be in their corner, I'll just be less inclined to engage with that person's work. But again, as you said, it's where you draw the lines. You, you know, if, as you said, it's how, you know, when is enough? Because otherwise, <laughs> you know, will we never watch anything? Because like, you know... <laughs> Eventually, everything will have the touch of a nonce or a rapist on it. It's only a matter of time. Exactly. Until but like for, or for example, is. for like, you know, horror fans... Like in a, as a per- perfect example, maybe do we say, oh, we shouldn't watch any of the Scream films because Harvey Weinstein produced them, like finance them, you know? <laughs> like it's like where, where yeah, if, where does the line exactly, end there? Exactly. I, I should also say, don't go to Venice Film Festival this year then, because they got a new Polanski and a new Woody Allen playing. There. <laughs> I saw that. <laughs> I was just like, wow. <laughs> okay. Ven- Venice is all right. <laughs> Venice are, as you said, taking a stance, but they <laughs> <I> don't care. <laughs> okay. In a different way. <laughs> sure. But yeah, it's such a nuanced topic, and I think it's harder with films than it is with music like with music you can be like the music is just that one person that one person's a dirtbag i can decide not to support their stuff and buy their stuff with films yes it could be the director was shitty or one of the actors was shitty but a film is a you know it's a project of multiple people you know and can you say like oh i'm not going to engage it because of this one person i don't know it's tricky but as he said it's nuanced, tricky. There isn't a definitive answer. We'll be asking this question for time in memoriam <laughs> as horror fans. Yes. Indeed. <laughs> no, amazing. But I think as a last kind of question to round us out, um, for yourself, do you have particular films that if someone was like, I've never watched horror, I want to know if horror is for me, would there be particular films that you'd be like, these are the ones you need to watch to know if horror is for you? 
Yeah. So I mean, my my go to, my my ride or die, my favorite film of all time is uh, Dario Argento's Suspiria mm-hmm. from 1977. I think it's a nice entryway film, to be honest. Although if you're looking for narrative, <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna struggle. <laughs> but in terms of like to capture the kind of creepy haunting atmosphere that horror films can create mm-hmm. there's not there's second to none like that film is like a, a literal fairy tale and i think it's just one of the most beautiful films ever made so that is always one of my litmus tests for whether i like you as a person uh generally yeah. <laughs> um, i would also say uh we've, we've mentioned it previously but i do think possession is a very inaccessible accessible film mm. because it has so many multitudes of layers and it's such a, a caustic and uh incendiary film but also deeply human i think it's a really interesting film for people to kind of look at the kind of psychological aspects of horror Mm. and then i think the films of the evil dead films i think are a good one uh to show the kind of lighter side of horror but also showcase the the kind of gore guts and grew that you can uh present and then I don't know, probably The Wicker Man 2006. <laughs> um, just because that is obviously the running joke that I've been marketing myself on for the last five years. Yep. I don't know if you can see, but I'll just do this for you. I mean, it's it's getting out of hand, really. I, I love it. We we love a chaotic Nick Cage film around here, so I am per- I'm perfectly fine with that answer. Not the bees. <laughs> Amazing. I, mean, I, ha- I do have that tattooed on me for the rest of my life. That so yeah is immaculate i love that i love that so much that's fantastic but no amazing um thank you for that and i really like those lists of specific films like they're as you said it spans multiple different types of genres really like that list and also that it wasn't just kind of standard oh watch chucky watch you know scream watch nightmare which are all good they're, they're all great gateway horrors and it's a way that a lot of us came into horrors through scream Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th and the Charles Play films and Halloween and all that sort of stuff. And I have infinite love for those films because they shape the horror film, you know, horror person yeah. that I am now. But there's some more fun stuff that you can engage with. And then, and then you know, do them. Then watch do them, them later. Exactly. Do them later. It's fine. <laughs> there's multiple entries in all of those franchises. You're fine. <laughs> yes. You've got, you got time. Amazing. But no, thank you so much for coming on and chatting with me. This has been really engaging and enjoyable. And before I let you go, where can people find you and I just support your general horror musings and work um so you you can find me on all social media platforms which seem to be doubling exponentially yeah post per day (laughs) yes uh so you can find me at xcon give it to you at and uh letterbox and threads and instagram and bebo (laughs) and friends reunited and myspace at had branson uh that's where i'm at everywhere so it's just my name, but just swap a bit of it around. Um, and other than that, you can just listen to me on, if you subscribe to the Evolution of Horror uh, Patreon, every month I do a review show called Fresh Blood, which uh, is one of the highlights of my month. And we get to talk about everything new that's been going on with horror. And we just dropped a new episode today as of recording. So uh, chuck Mike some money. I don't see much of it. I don't get, it's not, a, we haven't quite worked out trickle down economic, <laughs> economics yet, but it, You'll be paying his mortgage, so that's good. 
I suppose. <laughs> I'll take solace in that. <laughs> um, but yeah, you can. That's where you can find a lot of my uh, my my musings on uh, or my letterbox. My letterbox is the best place to go to f- see what I really think about films. Amazing. Again, thank you so much. And to my listeners, keep your eyes and ears peeled for future episodes in my Why Horror series, and keep an eye on my Twitter to see what I'm thinking about doing for my next series as I wrap up this Why Horror conversation. But yeah, thanks again for listening and see you soon.